Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Acts, uh, Acts chapter 23, uh, verse 12, as we're continuing our series through the book of Acts. And so uh, we've seen Paul, he is finding himself uh, on trial, and Lysias is trying to kind of get to the bottom of who this Paul guy is, what Paul did uh, to cause all of this commotion. And so after uh, three failed attempts, Lysias still has no answers. And Paul finds himself uh, in jail, uh, beaten up by the crowd, rejected uh, by the religious leaders, and he finds himself wondering what in the world is going on. And so he, he's left to, to nurse his own wounds. He's perplexed uh, about and, and uncertain about his future, and yet he's in desperate need of God's grace. And when he found himself in his lowest of lows, the Lord came to him the following night and encouraged him and made himself known to him. And he tells him this in Acts 23, verse 11. He says, have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. And so normally you would think after these words from Jesus that would encourage you of like, have courage, you're going to make it to Rome safe, where you're going to testify about me. You're thinking things are going to go smooth. From now on, Paul is going to go from the barracks straight to Rome. And yet where he finds himself is in even more difficult times and even more trials because he becomes the target of a terrorist attack. And then he becomes a defendant in a tense court battle, which seems to go nowhere and Yet we see how Paul remains calm and courageous as he submits his life to the sovereign plan and power of God. As he held on to the word from the Lord, have courage, remain faithful, because you are going to be my witness. You are going to testify about me in Rome. And really what I want us to focus today on our passage is that sometimes it's easy for us to affirm the sovereignty of God theologically. In other words, it's easy for us to say, you know what, God is sovereign. But it becomes very difficult for us to affirm it once we start to experience it as we go through trials. And really what we see in our passage today, this, this passage is going to show us the way of how Paul is going through trials and how he's having to rest in the sovereign plan of God and how the Lord is still revealing himself, showing Paul that he is in control even though he's going through these trials. And so my goal for us today is that we can see through this passage that we can rest the weight of our concerns on God our Father who has everything in his hands and that despite no matter what happens to us in our lives, he still remains in control. And so let's look at Acts uh, chapter 23, verse 12. It says this, When it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as, he, as if you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. 
Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. So he took him, brought him to the commander and said, the prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, led him aside and inquired privately, what is it you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they're going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush. The men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they have killed him, now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. So again, immediately the next day after Jesus assured Paul in the barracks that he would have a safe arrival in Rome, what happens? More than 40 Jews hatch a plot to kill him. And these Jews are serious. They took an oath not to eat or drink anything until Paul is killed, which meant uh, by them making that oath, which meant they were serious about killing Paul and they wanted to act immediately because you can only live for so long without eating or drinking. And apparently the Sanhedrin was part of the plot. They agreed to the term saying, hey, let's reconvene. Let's discuss this matter of Paul. And while Paul would make his way there, they would ambush him and they would kill him. It's like so much for justice and law from the Sanhedrin. And yet, what do we see in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this plot of wanting to kill Paul? We see how the Lord intervenes through a young man. Now, we don't know anything about this young man. We, we don't know how old he is. We don't know how he heard about the plan. All that we do know is that he is a relative of Paul. Somehow, he's heard about the plan, overheard the conspiracy, approached Paul about this conspiracy. Paul took the information serious. The Roman centurion took the information serious from Paul. And Lysias, the Roman commander, took this information serious. And he makes plans, rather than to take Paul back to the Sanhedrin, he makes plans to take, the, take Paul to Caesarea. And in verse 23, we're not going to read it, but in verse 23, you can read it for yourself. He makes plans to protect Paul, and he summons uh, the centurion to prepare 200 infantrymen, 70 mounted soldiers, and 200 spearmen. Like, that's 470 soldiers to protect one guy against 40 angry Jews. And so in our passage today, I want to say here, here's the very first thing we can learn from our passage today is this, if you're taking notes. Notice this, the Lord does not save his people from trials, but rather he saves them through trials. Like think about it, the Lord doesn't save us from trials, but he saves us through trials. Like what's happening in the text here? Like think about this, Paul receives a vision from the Lord. Jesus tells him, have courage. You're going to make it safely to Rome where you're going to testify about me. And now you would think, okay, the next thing that's supposed to be happening is Paul's supposed to go to Rome. But what happens? 40 angry Jews plot to kill him. Now instead of going to Rome, he goes to Caesarea. Faces more trials. Don't you think it would just be easier for the Lord to save him from that and take him straight to Rome? Let's just get on with it. 
And yet, this is almost the pattern of the Lord. We, we see this throughout Scripture. The Lord never saves His people from trials. He always saves His people through trials. Think about uh, His people when they were enslaved and, and, and captive, and captive uh, by the Egyptians. Don't you think it would have been easier just to, to save uh, His people from all of the things that are going on in their lives? How many plagues did the Lord need? He technically didn't need any plagues to save his people. And yet after 10 plagues, he delivers them. And then what happens? The Egyptians chase after them. And rather than avoiding all of this, he saves them as they're going through the Red Sea, not around the Red Sea. As they face the waters of judgment, they are being saved while the Egyptians are being destroyed. We see this even in Rahab in the walls of Jericho. They didn't take her and her family out before they attacked Jericho, but rather they said, you have to stay in this house and wait for us. And what it was Rahab forced to do? She was forced to trust the Lord, that he's going to save me, that he's going to be faithful to me, that he is faithful to his word as she's clinging and hearing all the noises and the walls collapsing all around her and people dying. And yet in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the trial, the Lord saves her through it. Like even think about our personal salvation. Like don't you think it would be easier that the Lord would just save us from sin? Like, like, like boom, we're saved. We're, we're saved from the penalty of sin. We're saved from the bondage of sin. We're saved from the presence of sin. No more sin. Whoop-de-doo. Everything is done. And yet, how does the Lord save us? He has saved us. He is currently saving us. And He will save us. He's saving us despite of sin. He is saving us through Jesus Christ. And yet, it would seem so much easier for the Lord to save us from all of these things, yet He doesn't. He saves us through these things. And the question is, well, why? I, I, I don't really have an answer other than, because if He saves us from these trials, we would really not have to trust Him. But yet when He saves us through these trials, what does it force us to do? It forces us in the midst of these trials to look to Him to cling to Him, to rest in Him, to trust in Him, saying, Lord, I don't know what's going on, but I, I'm trusting that You are faithful. I'm trusting that You're powerful, more powerful than my situation. I'm trusting that in the midst of that, if I find myself struggling with sin and I'm doubting my salvation, I am looking to You, trusting You, knowing that what You've done, Lord Jesus, is enough, even when I feel myself constantly falling short. I am looking to You. And this is how the Lord works. This is how the Lord saved Paul. He's not saving him from these trials, but rather he is saving him through these trials. And this is where Paul finds himself. And so in order uh, to bring the governor Felix up to speed on the situation, Lysias decides to write a letter. Uh, and this is what he says. Look at verse 24 in this letter. I'm sorry, verse 26. He says, Claudius Lysias, this is how we know that this, the, the, the commander's name is Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. Wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before the Sanhedrin. 
I found out that their, the accusation were concerning questions of their law and that there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. And when I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. So here again, we see how the Lord uses Lysias to protect Paul. And notice even in this letter what Lysias does. Lysias testifies about Paul's innocence. And so he writes to Felix. And so real quick, what do we know about Felix? Um, Real quick, I'm not going to spend too much time on him, is that Felix was a violent, licentious, ineffective governor of the Roman province of Judea. The only reason he came into power was through marriage because he married the daughter of King Agrippa I. And eventually, because of his incompetency, he would be removed from his position because he mishandled the riots in Caesarea. And even though the letter was addressed to most excellent Felix, Lysias and everybody else knew there was nothing excellent about Felix. So basically, when you think about Felix, just think about a greedy, violent, incompetent governor that couldn't do anything, and eventually he would be removed because of his incompetency. Not because the people didn't vote for him, but because his own, the own empire saw how he mishandled everything and eventually removed him. But, but again, so, so, so the Lord uses Lysias to protect Paul. He writes a letter to, to Felix uh, about this. And notice all that, that, that Lysias is saying. Like, first of all, Lysias, he's trying to make out that he's this top-notch soldier. Protecting Paul because he found out that Paul was a Roman citizen. And yet, when we read the text, that's not what happened. Lysias did not want to protect Paul. Lysias thought he was an Egyptian revolutionary and then he wanted to flog him and then he found out he was a Roman citizen. So Lysias kind of trying to cover up his tracks but one of the most important statements that Lysias makes as he he states his innocence. uh, Look at verse 29 here. I found out that the accusations were concerning the questions of their law. And that there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. So what does Lysias say in his letter to Felix? I don't really know what's going on. It seems like the problem is a theological problem. From my perspective, I don't see why this guy's in jail or why he should be facing death. And so these soldiers, 470 of them, took the letter with Paul to Caesarea. And even though these soldiers thought they were transporting a prisoner, from God's perspective, they were transporting a a messenger. And even though Felix was ruthless, corrupt, incompetent, he at least begins the right way in wanting to hear this case and request his accusers to come so that he can hear the trial. And I think here's the second thing we can learn in our text. Not only does the Lord save us through trials and not from trials, but the second thing that we can learn if you're taking notes is that the Lord is in control even when we are going through trials. Like the Lord is in control even though we're going through trials. Again, look at this text and and, and see how the Lord has intervened in this text, how he's frustrated the plans of the Jews. So the Lord uses Paul's nephew, a little boy, we don't know how, how old he is, to somehow overhear the plot of the Jews. 
Well, what's the chances of a little boy overhear the plot of the Jews and actually take that plot serious? And then he goes to Paul. Paul listens and Paul takes his nephew serious. And then the centurion takes Paul's nephew serious. And then Lysias, he actually takes the little boy by the hand. And maybe he is a little boy because that's why he takes him by the hand. And he takes the news serious. And then Lysias orders 470 soldiers to protect Paul. And what is all of this? Coincidence? No. It is the Lord sovereignly working out every little detail as he's influencing a little boy, as he's influencing the commander. All of this occurs under the sovereign rule of the king. I love what Kenneth Gangle says. He says, sometimes God delivers his children by simple word of a young relative. Sometimes he has to call in the cavalry. But at all times, he is ultimately in charge. And the fact that the Lord is in control, even though we're going through trials, is encouraging for us because that, that, that means that God has an infinite number of options as he's working out his will. Like, like God is not pigeonholed with only two options, like sometimes we feel. But he has an infinite amount of options to work out his will. He's working every little detail out in our lives. And even though when we find ourselves in the midst of trials or we find ourselves like living an ordinary life and there's nothing spectacular about it, every little tiny little detail that's going on in your life has been ordained by God and God is working that out. So what does that mean for us? That should give us great comfort when we find ourselves in the midst of trial. That should cause us to, to trust the Lord knowing that he's working out everything even though it seems small, even though it seems insignificant. And Paul even would say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he, he says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it unto completion until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying God has not stopped working. I am sure of this, that he began it and he will finish it. He is constantly working in every little detail of our lives, regardless of our circumstances, which means we can trust him in these difficult circumstances. We can thank him for his care and for his provision. And this is what's happening in Paul's life. Now, in chapter 24, there's a, a typical court hearing. It includes the, the filing of charges, the, the prosecution of the plaintiff's spokesman, and the answer from the defendant. And after a judge would normally hear uh, from the plaintiff or the defendant, he would render a verdict. But in this case, there's a unique twist. Something different happens. So let's look at the court hearing uh, in chapter 24, verse 1. It says this, Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. These men presented their case against Paul to the governor. And when Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, We enjoy great peace because of you, and reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation because of your foresight. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with utmost gratitude. But so, 
that I will not burden you any further, I request that you would be kind enough to give us a brief hearing. For we have found this man to be a plague, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple and so we apprehended him by examining him yourself. You'll be able to discern the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews also joined in the attack, alleging that these things were true. Now, Paul's accusers were serious. And the accusations they were bringing was very serious. Like they, they, they bring in a turn, an attorney, a professional orator named Tertullus to prosecute him. And notice the flattery that is dripping from his lips. He is trying to make a favorable impression on Felix. And he says, we express great gratitude for the peace that you have brought, Felix. Now, the reason why he's bringing up peace is because one of the number one values of the Roman Empire was peace. All they wanted was peace. They wanted the nations who they've conquered to submit to them in their rule and live in peace. So what was the job of every governor? Every centurion and every commander was peace. And if you violate peace and you go against the empire, death. So how does Tertullius open? He says, you are wonderful in bringing peace. We thank you for the peace that you have brought. And we have benefited from your peace. Now, we know this is a lie uh, because two years later he'll be removed because he failed to bring peace. But the reason he brings up this value of peace and what a great job Felix has done is not just to puff him up, but also to show the serious charges that he's bringing against Paul and how Paul is violating the peace. Uh, and so, so he brings up four charges against Paul. The, the very first charge he brings against Paul, uh, look at verse 5 here. He says, For we have found this man to be a plague. And some of your translations is going to say a pest. In other words, what the very first charges we have found Paul to infect people. He's a virus. He is not good. Here's the second charge. Look, look at verse 5. Not only is he a plague, a virus, a pest that infects people, but he is an agitator among the Jews throughout the Roman world. In other words, he is a political agitator. He stirs up riots wherever he goes. In other words, the peace that we value under the Roman Empire, he is against. Wherever he goes, who brings chaos and riots come along, follow him. Now, we have to be honest, there's always a little grain of truth in some of these accusations, uh, because wherever Paul went, what followed? Riots. But did he cause these riots? No, he never caused these riots. These riots were caused by those who hated the gospel. And so even though riots occurred wherever Paul went, he was never the agitator of these riots. He never caused these riots. 
And so he says Paul is a pest. He is a political agitator. The third charge he brings against him is he calls him a leader of a sectarian movement. The leader of verse verse 5, the end of verse 5, the leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, this is the only part in Scripture where the Nazarene, the term Nazarene is used to describe Christian. Now, the reason why he's using the term Nazarene is because more than likely is because of the condescending implication that the term Nazarene have. And we know this because Nathaniel, he makes this comment. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In, order, in other words, in order to be a Nazarene or be from Nazareth, which means nothing good's come from it. So, so he is saying this is not even a valid group of people. They come from a place where nothing good comes from. And it's like a cult that he is leading. And it's stirring up riots. It's violating the peace. And then in verse 6, he says, finally, the final charges. He says this, he even tried to desecrate the temple. And so we apprehended him. In other words, he was disruptive as he was trying to desecrate the temple. Now, obviously, these charges were false. But basically, all of these four charges, here's one single uh, statement. Paul is guilty for disrupting the peace as a rebellious member of a dangerous sect. Now, for us, we, we hear about these charges and we're thinking to ourselves, okay, no big deal. But what we have to understand in the Roman world, those charges were a big deal because those charges were punishable by, by death. Just like treason in this country will be the death penalty, so disturbing the peace will cause the death penalty. And so now Paul is going to bring his defense and as he brings his defense, he's also going to seize the opportunity to present the gospel. Look at verse 10, Paul's defense. It says this, When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, Because I know you've been a judge of this nation for many years, I'm glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. You can verify for yourself that it's no more than 12 days since I went up to, to worship in Jerusalem. They didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Neither can they prove the charges they are now making against me. But I admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way, which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have a hope in God which these men themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I always strive to have a clear conscience towards God and men, and after many years I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my people. And while I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me richly purified in the temple without a crowd and without any uproar. It is they who ought to be here before you to bring charges if they've anything against me. Or let these men here state what wrongdoing they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Other than this one statement I shouted while standing among them today, I am on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. So in Paul's very first defense, 
he says basically my religious record is clear. Like I've not broken the law. He says you can verify for yourself I've been here for 12 days in Jerusalem. There's no way I could have caused a riot with less than two weeks. There's no charges that you can bring against me. I've done every effort to make sure that my behavior as conscious is clear before God. And yes, I worship the God of our ancestors who revealed himself to us through his prophets and through Scripture. And my hope is the resurrection. And then in his second defense, he, he basically is saying, my civil behavior is blameless. There, there's no riots. And he gives this version of the story. He says, the only reason I came to Jerusalem is to bring an offering to help people in Jerusalem. I've taken great pains to, to bring this offering. And, and if I caused any riots, the ones who should be bringing this accusation should be the Jews who caught me. Where are they? They're not here. If they were the ones who called me and apprehended me, shouldn't they be here to testify? And since they're not here to testify, what charges can you bring against me? You have no case. And then his third defense, basically his personal message. This is what my hope is in. This is what I could be found guilty of, is that Jesus is alive. And so he brings up the resurrection of Jesus Christ Again, now, now here's the twist in our story. Normally, in a, a normal court hearing, you would have the plaintiff bring the charges. You would have the defendant uh, defending himself. And after the judge has heard the plaintiff and the defendant, he would make a ruling. But he doesn't. He doesn't make a ruling. Instead, he says, you know what? I need to wait for Lysias. When Lysias comes back, then I'll make my ruling. Which doesn't make any sense because what did Lysias claim in his letter? Lysias claimed in his letter that, that, that this guy is, is innocent. I don't see any charges of any uproar, any riot. The only thing I see is a theological problem, a disagreement about the law. But other than that, I don't know what else to tell you. In my letter, he is innocent. But regardless of Felix's motive or what he wanted to do, we see how Paul finds himself in limbo, stuck under the authority of Felix, unable to go to Rome and waiting. And yet Paul doesn't feel sorry for himself, but he uses this as an opportunity not just to share the gospel publicly, but also in private. Look at, look at verse 24. It says this. Several days later, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ Jesus. Now, as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became afraid and replied, Leave for now, but when I have an opportunity, I will call for you. At the same time, he was also hoping that Paul would offer him money, so he sent for him quite often and conversed with him. And after two years had passed, Porcius Fistus succeeded Felix, and because Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. 
So what did Paul do? Here, this judge is incompetent. All the evidence is before him. The judge refused to make a ruling. And yet Paul doesn't feel sorry for himself. He uses this opportunity, this this private opportunity where now the setting, he gets to stand before Felix and and Felix is kind of curious about the matters and the subjects of Jesus and he kind of has a little bit of a Jewish background and he knows enough, but now he wants to find more about Jesus. And what does Paul do? Paul talks about the message of Jesus. He reasons with Felix about what God's word says about righteousness, about self-control and coming judgment. And all three topics should have been very convicting to Felix based on his lifestyle. And really what Paul was doing in this, this topic, he's highlighting God's holiness. He is highlighting man's sinfulness and the judgment to come and wanting to show Felix, this is why you need Jesus. And his message to Felix confronted his sin with a call to repentance. And how did Felix respond to the sermon? Look at 25. He says, Now as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became afraid and replied, Leave for now, but when I have an opportunity, I will call you. In other words, he rejected his message. He was driven by greed rather than in his interest in God. As he would show Paul, you're not in control, I am, and I'll summon you whenever I want to summon you. And also in his fear of man, he decided to keep Paul in jail for over two years. So so let's wrap it up here. A couple applications. I think what this text really shows us is just how the Lord is just sovereignly in control in every single detail despite his people going through trials. Like even though Paul sat in jail for two years, the Lord remained faithful, the Lord remained sovereign and in control of Paul's situation. And Paul even would later say to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7, for we walk by faith not by sight. Like, yes, you might be perplexed in your situation. You might have no idea what is going on, and things don't seem to make any sense. And you might find yourself living in limbo, and you don't know whether you're coming or whether you're going, but yet you can remain calm, yet you can trust in the Lord because He is in control of your situation. And everything that has happened, whether good or bad, is by the sovereign plan of God. So rest in it trust in it and this is what we see paul did and this is the application we can apply to our lives i don't know what's going on in your life i don't know what trial you are facing or even are going to face but what i do know is despite what happens the lord remains in control he is sovereign over it and that means you can trust him you can rest in him I, th- I, th- I think a second thing we can learn is notice how Paul taught the Word of God. Notice his boldness of it. How he would adjust the Word of the Lord to his audience. Now, now think about this. When you stand in front of a judge that has your future in his hands, 
what kind of message are you going to present to him? Are you going to bring up his licentious lifestyle? Are you going to bring up his sin? Are you going to bring up the holy demands of God and the wrath of God? You're not going to bring those things up. And yet, what did Paul do? It's like, Paul, that's not the message, but if you want to get out of here, you've got to bring a good message, not that message. And yet Paul was faithful, and Paul cared about Felix. Paul saw Felix's lifestyle, and he says, you are acting against a wrathful God. You are defying him. The Lord is going to destroy you. He is a consuming fire, and his wrath is geared towards you, going to be poured out on you. And this is why you need to flee to Jesus, because who can face the wrath of God and live? No one. This is why you need Jesus. And so we see how Paul was bold. We see how Paul proclaimed the truth in love. How he was not fearful of man. And, and I think one of the things that we can learn in our situation, especially today when we find ourselves living in a world of tolerance where there's basically intolerance towards us, is that we have to be bold. We have to confront sin. We have to talk about our God that is both loving and wrathful. And that basically Jesus came to save us from God's wrath himself. Regardless of how people might respond. But then the, the last application is I think we should take warning from, from Felix's response. Because I think this is the response to the gospel for, for many people in our culture today. And it might even be the response of you towards, uh, towards the gospel. Like, like notice Felix knew about God, knew about the law, knew about the Messiah, knew about the prophecy. He knew about Jesus. And at first, it seems like he's curious. He asked Paul to come and talk, talk, tell me about Jesus here. I, I see. Okay. I, I understand. And then he, he feels kind of convicted. And instead of responding to the message and acting on this conviction of repenting and surrendering the idols that he was clinging to and trusting in Christ, he was too busy clinging to his idols and rejecting Christ. And I think this is the response of many today when it comes to the gospel. And here we see Felix was clinging to his idol of preserving his career, wanting more money, wanting more power, wanting to be in control of the situation. And for him to have Jesus, which means he had to surrender these things. He had to admit that his career means nothing. And following Jesus might even cost him his career. That money doesn't mean anything because Jesus is more precious than that. And that he is not in control of anything, but Jesus is in control of everything. And yet, he couldn't let go of his idols. He was clinging to them. And sadly, the idols that he clung to ended up failing him. Two years later, lost his career. Probably lost some of his wealth. Lost all control. 
And Jesus even speaks about this. He says, Jesus says, what does it benefit you if you gain the whole world and yet you forfeit, you forfeit your soul, you lose your life? And we really find ourselves in a culture where we are made to believe that we are self-made men and women in control of our lives and really in need of nothing because we are independent. Like we've been ingrained with that. Like, Like think about us parents. What are you training your children to be? Come on, let's be honest. You want them to be what? Say it out loud. Come on independent like like, and this is what our culture teaches us and so you train your child to be independent and then oh yeah by the way you need to be independent but dependent on the lord well which one is it and yet this is what our culture believes and our culture is quick to cling to these idols thinking that these idols will fulfill us these idols will satisfy us they will give us meaning in life and then when i experience jesus i can't let go of these idols i can maybe experience jesus as i cling to my idols but the reality of it is you can't you can't hold on to your idols and jesus and this is what felix understood Felix knew in order for him to repent and to surrender, he had to let go of his idols, and he was unwilling to do that. And I think that's for many of us. And yet we've, we, we, we've, we've kind of created this lie in our heads that I can cling to my idols and just add Jesus as another idol into my life. It's impossible. You can't do it. And here's the reality of these idols that you're clinging to, the idol of control, the idol of meaning. The, the, the idol of, of, of identity, of, of power, of money, of security, of happiness, they're constantly going to flee you. They're going to abandon you. And yet, Jesus, he comes, he lays down his life for you. He'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you. He promises you so much more, but yet, we just can't seem to depart from our idols. And this is what we see what happened to Felix. And, and I think for us, there's, there's a warning that we need to take. Like we need to let go of some of our idols. You cannot cling to it and cling to Christ. It's impossible. Forsake your idols before it's too late. Repent and surrender. Trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Because again, this was the message from Paul to Felix. Who can endure the wrath of God? The wrath of God is coming. Who can endure? And the answer is no one. Only Jesus Christ. And this is why you need Jesus. To save you from God's wrath that is going to be revealed, that is geared towards you. God is ultimately saving you from God himself through Jesus Christ. Forsake those idols. Cling to him. Trust him. Knowing he is in control of everything. Knowing he is faithful. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you've saved us from your wrath through Jesus Christ on the cross. 
And Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know the idols that we're holding on to, that we're clinging to. The things that we think gives us meaning and purpose and happiness and security. And the false hopes that we have. And so, Lord, I pray right now, can you confront those idols? Can you make those idols known and help us to surrender them? Help us to look to you. Help us to trust you and rest in you. As we find ourselves going through trials. And yet in these trials, what you're doing is you're exposing our idols. And by your grace, you're giving us the ability to let go of these idols. As we're getting ready to to sit at the table, I want you to think about this. How do I know that the Lord is in control of my trials? How do I know the Lord is going to save me through these trials? I think this table is a beautiful picture because the very first thing this table reminds us of is that when we get to sit at it, what's our identity? We are sons and daughters of the king, heirs to the kingdom of God. In other words, we don't belong to this world. We certainly live in it. We don't belong to it. We belong to the kingdom of God. We're heirs to it. In other words, there's a guarantee to it. How do we know that the Lord is going to save us through these trials? Not only are we sons and daughters of the king, heirs to the kingdom of God, but we also know how God took care of our greatest problem, our greatest evil, by sending his son to die on the cross for our sin. His body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. And so when we eat the body, when we drink the blood, it reminds us of how God has taken care of our greatest enemy, our greatest problem. So now we can trust him. We can look to him. We can remind ourselves of who he is and what he's done for us. And so even though these trials that I'm going to face, I know the Lord is going to be faithful. Why? Because he has already been faithful. And every week when I come and I sit at this table, I'm reminded of the faithfulness of God. I'm reminded of how he laid down his life for me, how he has invited me in. And I didn't have to prove myself. I don't have to do anything. It's all by his grace. And so as we hand out these elements, like, like why meditate on these truths. Like, like think about your circumstances. Think about the trials that you're facing. Even maybe think about the idols that you're clinging to that the Lord is exposing. And as you see his faithfulness in the bread and in the cup, now you can start releasing and letting go of those idols because you're reminded of his faithfulness. You're reminded of who he is and what he's done. So this is what I want you to meditate on. This is a visible imagery of the gospel.
It helps us reorient our hearts and our minds. So as our ushers come forward to hand out the elements, we ask, wait for everybody to distribute that. Use this as an opportunity to meditate on the gospel truths. Be encouraged by it as you think about your trials and your situations. Let me pray for us and then we'll distribute these elements. Lord, thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Thank you for this wonderful privilege that we get to sit at this table. Thank you for your body that was broken for us, your blood that was shed for us, the wrath of God that you endured on our behalf so that we did not have to face it. And by you doing it on the cross, we've been set free from the bondages of sin. The guilt of sin has been paid for. There's no longer wrath nor condemnation. There is forgiveness. There is acceptance. There's everlasting life. We thank you for that. So, Lord, I pray that this time would be a time that we're reminded of these truths, that you'd overwhelm us with your mercy and with your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.